Applications are now open for the 18th annual Tin House Summer Workshop, which takes place July 11th to the 19th on the campus of Reed College in Portland, Oregon. The program combines workshops, seminars, career panels, agent meetings, and readings. This year's faculty includes Renee Gladman, Tommy Orange, Solma Sharif, Mira Jacob, and many more. In addition to scholarships, payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. More information can be found at tinhouse.com slash workshops. Before we jump to my conversation with writer and poet E.J. Ko, I wanted to alert those listeners who are not yet supporters that with the turn of the year, we have both refreshed and jump-started the various possible gifts for people who become patrons. Beyond the access to the bonus audio archive, to which E.J. Ko will be adding some readings, there's also the Tin House Early Readers subscription, where you can receive 12 books over the course of the year, months before they are available to the general public. But that subscription series is at the moment full. If you're interested, keep your eye on it, as there will likely be some new openings later in the winter, or at the latest, in early spring. But due to its popularity, we've added some new reward tiers where, if you trust my taste, you can get copies of books selected by me on your behalf. And E.J. Ko's new memoir, Magical Language of Others, is now the Tin House featured new release this winter on Patreon, joining the evergreen Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing. You can find out more about how to get a copy of one of these books, or to join one of these subscription series, or to have access to the bonus audio archive at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you're old school, not interested in merchandise, or just want to make a one-time gesture of support, you can go to tinhouse.com slash support. Now, on to the conversation with E.J. Co. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet and writer E.J. Ko. Ko received her MFA from Columbia University in both poetry and literary translation from Korean and Japanese, and she's currently completing her PhD at the University of Washington in English language and literature. Her poems, translations, and stories have appeared in the Academy of American Poets, Prairie Schooner, Boston Review, Columbia Review, 
Los Angeles Review of Books, World Literature Today, PEN America, and the Anthology of Surveillance Poetics, among many others. Ko is the author of the 2017 poetry collection A Lesser Love, which won the Pleiades Editor's Prize. Poet Don Miche says of A Lesser Love, E.J. Ko's poetry is born from the pain of immigration, the pain of immigrant parents, their relentless labor for survival, their neglected children. Ko is also an inheritor of Korea's violent history, so her language is crevassed and laced with historical anger, loss, and violence. A Lesser Love is a remarkable debut book that exposes broken love, broken bodies across the sea of migration and history. E.J. Ko has received fellowships from the American Literary Translators Association, the McDowell Colony, and Kundaman, among others, and is the recipient of the 2017 American Literary Translators Association Emerging Translator Mentorship. As a result, she is co-translating two books by the Korean poet E. Won, entitled When They Ruled the Earth and the Lightest Motorcycle in the World. E.J. Ko is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, her memoir, just out from Tin House Books, entitled The Magical Language of Others. Sean Wong says, In The Magical Language of Others, E.J. Ko writes of the boundary between anonymity and naming, between absence and abandonment, between cruelty and safety for four generations of mothers and daughters, each speaking with an occupied heart and crossing narrative borders between Korea, Japan, and America. As a reader, you give yourself over to her narrative territory and the resetting of the borders of lineage, language, and lives lost. And Julia Kastner at Shelf Awareness adds, in startling, lyrical, imaginative prose, Ko wrestles with the meanings of devotion and duty and with the challenges of language and translation. The magical language of others is a masterpiece, a love letter to mothers and daughters everywhere. Welcome to Between the Covers, E.J. Ko. Hi, thank you for having me. So this is one of the more memorable reads that I've had in a long time. And just the story itself is so interesting on its own that I think you could have told this in a very conventional manner, and it would have still been an interesting book. But what really elevates the magical language of others is the way you tell the story, which I think makes it particularly interesting to unpack in a conversation. But before we unpack all of the ways you decide to tell this story, let's orient the listeners to the story. Tell us a little bit about what happened when you were 14 in your own family and, and how that is sort of colored and informed your creative life ever since. The story starts off pretty quickly, um, very sharply. When I was 14, my father got this tremendous job offer from South Korea. And the following year, um, he, he accepted the offer and my mother and father moved to Korea. And they moved me and my brother into this little house in Davis about 90 miles away. And my brother was 19 at the time, so we were both quite young. And so the initial contract was supposed to be about two years, but it went to three, to five, to seven, and 
Um, by the time they moved back, I was in New York, so when we moved in together in Seattle, it was nine years until we, we came together again. Um, but during the time that they were gone, I sort of um, did the usual teenage routine, you know, a, a lot of drinking and drugs and, and skipping school. Um, but there were darker things, like I developed an eating disorder, which was quite severe, and um, all eating disorders are, are quite severe. And, you know, I, I attempted my life regularly because at the time I felt like, why not? Um, however, you know, during those years, my mother also wrote me a letter every single week. And I would read them, but I didn't know Korean then the way I knew it now. And so I put it away, and by the time I moved back in with my parents, I was, um, I, I found this shoebox of things, and when I opened it, there were 49 letters. And it's so incredible, because at the time, I had just finished my program in poetry and translation. It was never planned to be that way, but I found her letters, and I was a translator, and I still did not know what to do with them. So I took them to Don Mi, and um, sh she's just so wonderful. She said a really small thing that stayed with me is that you found 49 letters, and in Buddhist tradition, 49 is the number of days that your soul wanders the earth looking for answers before the afterlife. I, I think from that I, I immediately understood I had to um, stop everything, you know, stop working, stop moving around, stay still, and and just translate these letters. And so that's how it, it's sort of come about. Well, you open both your poetry collection, A Lesser Love, and the new memoir with this question of translation. Um, your poetry collection opens with a poem, Showtime, that involves translation, that sort of introduces you as a translator and even engages with what is lost and gained in, in translation and how significance changes. And the magical language of others also has this similar move because it begins with a translator's note, even though you've written the book in English, um, which might seem strange to a reader at first who doesn't think they're reading a work in translation. But this note sort of sets the stage for your communication between your mother and you and the things that can't be spoken or, or things that get added unintentionally when they are spoken from one language to the next. So I was hoping maybe we could set the stage with you reading Showtime from the poetry collection and then also the first part of the translator's note, and then we could talk about it. Showtime. Something I say beforehand, this translates into, please be kind to me. But it suggests, even if I shame myself, please be kind to me. In the mirror, it means, even inside my great coat of conscience, drunk and white, please be kind to me. My mother opens her letters in Korean, Annyeong. This translates into hi or hello. I use both for the Korean greeting. High beams outward like the sun's rays. The tone transports energy without expecting reciprocity. One may absorb high with a casual wave or respond with a smile. 
Hello boomerangs for a response. Over the phone one says hello to hear a voice calling through silence. Hello is an alteration of hollow or holo from Old High German hala or hola, used to hail a ferryman. Hello comes as a question, are you there? Hello fetches me across an expanse of water. Unji is the name she gave me, un as in mercy and kindness, closer to mercy than kindness. Un falls between blessing and blessed. Ji lands at wisdom and knowing. Ji resides with judiciousness more than intelligence. Unji does not echo willfulness or innocence. It resonates with softness and sensibility. Angela is my Catholic name after Saint Angela Merici, a holy messenger. My mother calls me Angela when she speaks formally. Angela is proper for its foreignness, postured for the public. Unji belongs to her, Angela to everyone else. She calls my brother Changhyun, his Catholic name John, or your brother. For my father, your dad. For her, she is always mommy. We've been listening to E.J. Ko read both from A Lesser Love and The Magical Language of Others. These various ways you're addressed or named in your family reminds me also of our email correspondence, mm-hmm. where we sort of disappeared down a rabbit hole together of the various ways you might present your name to the world or have it represented. And you said in this email correspondence, using my ear, it would be strange to hear my name as Unji Ko. It would be Ko Unji or EJ Ko. However, using my eyes, Ko Unji looks odd. It looks the most correct as Unji Ko, but sounds the most correct as Ko Unji. EJ Ko is the same as it sounds and looks to me. It's very true. And and it's interesting to con contemplate how language is getting funneled through your eyes and ears. I think we we usually perceive language as this sort of uh, a thing that's translated through one channel, but sort of like the different ways we're hearing sound now, it's it, it gets channeled through our eyes and through our ears and the way things feel as well. And so I think I... Um, not only myself, but th- there's so many, and, and I learn more about it, but I feel very sensitive to that. I feel very sensitive to the way the words look, and I feel very sensitive to the way they sound. Mm. And what is um, most natural, without effort, um, without the posturing. Well, the rest of the book does not read like the translator's note, but the translator's note seems very important to me, because... Your parents leave when you're 14, and these artifacts that you're later translating involve a lot of idiosyncrasies, one being that they're written in what you call kitty diction. So they're written in Korean, but in a simplified version because you're not fluent in Korean or you weren't fluent in Korean. And they include words in English at certain times in parentheticals, which add... um, I think both pathos and comedy to these letters, but also she, your mom refers to you in the third person in in them. And I was hoping maybe you could talk more about these 
aspects of language in the letters, both as a daughter and as a translator, honestly? I think there are times I... I think your question when you're asking me how how to translate as a daughter, I mean, that really is important because there were moments in her letters in Korean that I can really hear her say these words and I can feel that, oh, this is what this word is going to point to and this is the tone and this is the gesture that follows it. And so it, it did give me uh, this, this other access, I think, that is that is really that's very special um, more than if if I didn't know her in that way when when I think of her letters i and and the way she sort of mothers me and them with repetition it's it's the mommy I think that's one of the choices I made pretty early on, and I didn't know quite why I was doing that. I could easily say mom. But one of the words that comes up the most in the whole entire book, and it's a very slim book, is mommy, because she refers to herself, um, mommy misses you, mommy would like you, Unji, uh, to feel better than mommy can feel better, and, and, and this sort of language. And that, it felt much closer to say mommy, since while using the kitty diction, there's also, um, she sort of infantilizes the relationship because as you get further down the letters, I'm growing in age, but in the letters, I, I am constantly sort of 14, 15 in that range. And she speaks to me that way. And so I found, I found that really interesting. Mm. Yeah. So they are artifacts of mothering. They are, um, points in which she mothers from a distance using the repetition and me using, like we said, the ear and the eye to, to try to pin down what that looks like. Yeah. And can you talk about why at certain points she'll pivot to English and then some of what happens in those parentheticals? That's a really wonderful question because she, she, will translate a word if she feels like it's a little too advanced. So she'll look up the first dictionary definition in her English dictionary, and whether that's the correct definition or not, she uses it. And so um, amongst all this um, sort of kitty diction in Korean, there will be these really big words um, and uh, like hopelessness or despair and it adds this sense of drama that and another sort of escalation or sometimes she um, writes the wrong definition and I think moments like that like you said add a sort of levity and they add a, a pause but they also add this wonderful texture if you read throughout what she's doing there is her attempt at translating something for me to read and my attempt at translating her act of translating, right? Because I, as a translator here, I also have to see what were the choices she was making as a translator and decide whether to show them, um, which, which I do want to show them. And so you see the original and you have your own experience with it and, and the parts that, um, and showing more of the parts that are a little more difficult to see. Hmm. Is that the importance of why we have the original images of the letters themselves? I think so. I think it it's important to have 
to have the original letters to see her handwriting. I, I think it's really special because she also includes little drawings and you you see the way her hand moves and you see the the way she writes the English. Um, you, you see her sort of transcribe the Japanese and that's a that's kind of like a little gem that um, you won't notice at first, but what she's doing there, and um, I've, I've had translators point this out to me as, as very interesting, she's transcribing the Japanese she's learning into Korean. So she's using Korean letters to sound out the Japanese, and that's um, such an interesting thing in her letters to be doing, um, and for me to correspond with that in English to have the languages of these three countries sort of triangulating like that in her letters. Well, it's interesting also this doubling because I think any 14-year-old would be trying to quote-unquote translate the motives of their mother and why they left and didn't come back until you were an adult, uh, and yet you're literally translating. So you're, you're both searching for the reasons and translating the words. Right. Yeah, I remember when I... I have such vivid memories of when I um, was trying to read the letters when I first got them in Davis. And he, I, I think it's interesting that I, my relationship with Korean was so that I had to read it out loud to understand what it meant. I couldn't sort of look at the word and associate that with the meaning, but I can read it, and when I heard the word, I can say, oh, that's what it is. That, that was about the level I was um, sufficient in. So I, was, I would get her letters, and then I would almost become her, right? I, I've become this vessel where I, I have to read her words and letters out loud and mimic her, and so there's a sort of translation in that, and trying to get the feelings of that and maybe um and, and you I don't know if you can tell actually but for the actual letters some of them have these really big dramatic like crevices on the page and I found out those are there because of the tears that my younger self wept while trying to read these letters and I think that adds another dimension of me as an adult trying to translate these letters that have um, visually been muddled by um, sort of the blurry vision of the past and my, my past younger self trying to read something that's becoming more and more difficult to read. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet and writer E.J. Ko about her latest book from Tin House Books, The Magical Language of Others. There are many things that inform the magical language of others that are Korean-specific, and one of them is the belief that the present is the revenge of the past, and that is something you open both of your books with, um, the Korean belief that you are born and become the parent of the one you hurt most. So I was hoping maybe we could pair another poem in another section, and I was hoping you'd read the poem, Father and Old Age. And then a couple pages near the beginning of the memoir. Father in his old age. There is a Korean belief that you are born the parent of the one you hurt most. Watching my father use chopsticks to split chicken katsu, he confesses that I may be the reincarnation of his own father. We finish our waters in silence, 
and walk home chatting about who to blame for where we are. He says the present is the revenge of the past. Revenge goes too far, I argue, and in our unhappiness, we both want to know we cannot pay enough. Pain becomes meaning. After this life, I fear I'll never meet him again. The present is the revenge of the past. There is a Korean belief that you were born the parent of the one you hurt most. I was revenge when I was born in 1988 at O'Connor Hospital in San Jose, California. I was the reincarnation of somebody wronged, and no wonder I took out a chunk of my mother's body. It was late September, not the average six-pounder, I weighed ten pounds. The crown of my head split a fissure, and when my shoulders passed through, I nearly killed her. Broad, swathed in muscle and green veins, I was hairless except for the faint whiskers of eyebrows and hungry, giving my mother and the doctor the impression of another boy. That same day at the hospital, my mother wiped her ripped parts and bussed to her job at the dry cleaners across town. Passing her home, a 600-square-foot unit at Sunny Hills, crowded apartments in Milpitas near sewage treatment ponds. It was her first month at the dry cleaners. She could not tell anyone that the stitches on her parts had opened. She hid in the bathroom to cry. Since her own mother had died young, she had looked after her siblings until she married. She had come to this country taking her son, my brother, and following her husband and his elderly mother a year ago. Only her two brothers and her sister back home could comfort her. As she reached down where it hurt, her eyes swelled shut like the glazed ducks with baked eyes they hung out on hooks at the lion market. When I was four, the doctor suspected I was a mute, a person who could not or would not speak, and no one could tell if I could read. Four and a half years, and I had said nothing. Even so, at Berryessa Flea Market, at the Lion Market in Milpitas, at Yawan Plaza in Fresno, my mother used my name like a fire poker to stoke me alive. The teacher urged her to put me in a school for children with learning disabilities. It was unthinkable to my mother, who chose to tutor me herself. She would have to stay home for longer. However, they needed extra money until my father graduated from school. In our apartment, she talked quietly since my father's mother napped on the floor pad in the same room. Epper, apple. She held it up. She took a bite of it. She drew a picture. A mother in pain may scold to the point of her own tears. When she had found out she was pregnant with me, my father and his mother urged her to lose the baby. She defied them for the chance that it might be a daughter. Epper. Four doctor's visits, and she refused been listening to E.J. Co. read from The Magical Language of Others. You, you've talked elsewhere about how when you lived at home, you were 
raised largely by your grandmother, that your parents spoke Korean at home, but your grandmother spoke Japanese. And when you'd go out in the world, you'd largely hear English and Spanish being spoken Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood. Do you connect this with the not speaking in some way, this um, anxiety around who's speaking what when? I, I think so. I think being in a household where many different languages are being spoken, but also because I think a lot of people grew up in, in multilingual houses, but maybe something that contributed to my silence was the way each of those languages were being treated. They were being treated like people, and so it was much more taboo to be speaking Japanese. Um, it was something that was... Um, made everyone uncomfortable. And to be speaking in Korean was difficult because it made everyone feel like it was taking away from the language in which I needed to use to survive, which was English. But when I spoke English, it's when I felt the farthest away from my family. And so it's, it's the languages, but it's even more so the relationship with the languages between each other and the way they're being treated might have contributed to some of that silence and some of the emotions that go with that and seeing the um, way that these languages are being treated. I, there, it was so easy to make a wrong move in a place like that. Mm. Well, I'd, l- I'd like to introduce a couple more Korean language specific concepts in in one of your bios it says part of your PhD is researching the cultural specific phenomena of chong which is loosely translated as deep attachment bond and reciprocity for place people and things and in your interview at real wildness you say everything has meaning because i have chong for it and I was born of my parents' chong for me. And I fall in love with strangers because I have chong for each of their unique individual lives and experiences. And you also say that when chong is betrayed or forcibly removed, it results in han. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about these two things, chong and han, for you personally and, and for the book. No one's asked me about Chung and Han before, so this is such a treat. Thank you for asking that question. I I have spent several years just with, uh, first it was just with the word Han, and that sounds um, really crazy that I would spend years and years translating a single word from the Korean that doesn't seem to have an equal in the English. And what I love is the... Um, sort of untranslatability of it. That's what I love. I love that area and that sphere. It's where I have the most fun. Because I think poetry is like that too. I think the memoir has that too. So Han is interesting because it's like a deep generational sorrow from a shared historical trauma. And I I, I, I spend a very long time um, just defining it and clarifying it more, but I think there's something 
about Han that although maybe it's not translatable, I, I think it can be felt universally. I think it's something that with, with words and with stories, it's, it's a feeling that obviously exists in other cultures and is present here in the States and is something that um, other generations feel very strongly. And the only thing that makes Korea unique with the word Han is that in Korea they actually have a word for it. And what that means is, is it's deeply associated with a Korean national identity versus um, anywhere else. So we know the feeling and sensation. It's, it's sort of like the way in the States we use the word freedom, you know. Um, it, it means something. It, it has an, a national identity to that. So Han is, is one of those things for Korea. And it, it just reminds me over and over again that um, although our experiences are unique, the experience of our emotions are not unique. And that's what allows us to sort of cross that barrier of, of when something seems untranslatable. Uh, that's where I find stories so compelling and art so effective. And Chung is is interesting because Chung is a little newer, but I'm I'm working um, deeper and deeper into this beautiful word, which is which is very similar to Han, but it's the other end of Han. It's 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 a love, it's a bond, it's an attachment, and it can be for anything. So there's a sort of um, it, it can be geopolitical, it, it can be attachment to earth, word, nature, the relationship things have, the country, you know. Um, it can it can just be deeply personal, like um, they say you're born of your mother's chung, you know, that chung is the thing that um, gives birth to you, it's her chung. And so, yeah, I, I, I love that word and for the same reasons in a similar way and the impact and relationship it has with Han. And so as I study more about Han, the more I get closer to knowing Chung because these two opposing things seem to define each other by what they are and what they're not. Mm. Um, so that's that's been great. It's, it's something I also talk about a lot when I speak to Korean literature and Korean-American literature is sometimes we'll look at certain scenes or, or look at the way the book moves. And, and I think if we add the discussion of Han and Chung to it, it it'll really open up the, the history of what's being talked about much more uh, and talk about the language on another level because I do think Han and Chung could be um, new ways to think about literature here and, and that goes for any piece of letter, literature now and, and the way we can discuss device and um, yeah so I became very curious about Han. Uh, coincidentally, I was reading your work in a book by Mary Kim Arnold called Litany for the Long Moment that also talked about Han at the same time, which prompted me to look further into it, finding a pamphlet edited by Janice Lee called Inherited Trauma, where she invited four different Korean writers to write on Han. And I was hoping I could just read a couple little pieces that struck me and just hear how they struck you. That would be great. Thank you. Okay. So, um, in the intro from Janice, there's a quote from Sun Nam Dong that describes Han as a feeling of unresolved resentment, 
against injustices suffered, a sense of helplessness because of the overwhelming odds against one, a feeling of acute pain in one's guts and bowels, making the whole body writhe and squirm, and an obstinate urge to take revenge and to right the wrong, all of these combined. And then later it says, Han is more than the presence of historical trauma, though the Japanese occupation of Korea and later the division of the peninsula seem important to Han. Han also weaves together unresolved corporeal history and the impossibility of articulation or expression. This last part made me think of both of how the correspondence between you and your mother was one way that you were receiving letters but were not able to write them back in the same fashion and that you literally couldn't read them. Um, but the part that leapt out the most to me was a line from the chapter by um, Su Yun Juliet Lee where she describes Han and says, Catalog all the things you can never know. Now paint them in your dreams with blood. And she goes on to describe post-Hemory Han as a type of time travel or mind reading or speculative intelligence. And I guess I wondered if any or all of these things produce thoughts for you or feelings um, or things that you want to push back against or embrace or embrace. No, I think um, with my work in Han, I... All of those things are true. I think it's really helpful. Um, have you heard of table setting? I love using this. I I learned it for um, when when I'm trying to have sort of difficult discussions on um, certain issues. Table setting is so helpful because it helps us visualize that. Um, it's almost like I'll put one definition of Han on a table. And when I add another one, it doesn't take off the first one. It's just that they can be there together. And so you keep sort of table setting and adding all these things and what uh, never taking any one of them off. And what that allows is um, is sort of like your your spirit around this word to encompass all these things simultaneously for a better understanding of what Han is. And I think Han does... Um, seem to ring uh, have slight nuances depending on the field of research and I think that's very interesting like in psychology they definitely talk about the um, physical symptoms of Han including dizziness heart palpitations I mean these are very you know um, fainting um, going to the hospital these are very real and there's also Han spoken of in sort of the political spheres and all the sort of change that's going on in South Korea now as um, as a spirit of revolution, as, as, as something that allows you to enact, um, I think you mentioned the word revenge, but it also can be this sort of righteousness of wanting exactitude, and I, I think it, it's, it's that as well. Um, the, the deep historical trauma is true, but I think we, we think of the deep historical roots of Han as still pretty pretty recent but i mean i think it goes way back you know it goes back to the way um women are treated in old korean society and there's um old old traditions where um 
it, let's say if your husband dies, you have to bury yourself with him in the tomb, and 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 that brings sort of honor to your family, and that allows your family to con- the rest of your family to continue living with their head held high. I mean, that causes a sort of deeply painful Han. I think I'm. It, it's still a work in progress, but I'm. I'm seeing more and more how Han is passed, the way Han is passed down through women, um, the way those stories of Han are, are told and reinforced as well, uh, not necessarily relieved, but sometimes um, exacerbated um, with the relationship of mother-in-laws and with um, new wives coming into the family and the things, the debt that is immediately owed. So that that creates a sort of devastating Han. I know that my mother and um, my father's mother, my grandmother, they they didn't have the best relationship. There's this um, painful Han between them. Uh, Yeah, I I find all of that so fascinating and interesting. And for me, the way that I um, am translating Han now is 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 one more uh, like tiny little facet to that kaleidoscopic word and that's i see han as a sort of gap it's a gap between two things and it can be any two things you know it can be resolve and not being resolved or some sort of um recompense or some sort of of healing but it's the gap that won't close hmm. and it's uh because And it's a gap that you yourself sometimes won't close because the risk is if you close that gap, if you heal, if you move on, if you forgive, if you um, try to move in that direction, it, 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 it almost feels as if you cannot have Han anymore when you've identified yourself with Han for so long. And so Han, I think, also includes um, a resistance to lose Han. I love that. Yeah. And um, if I were to do my own table setting in order to find another entryway into your book and your experience with your mother and her letters, that quote that I read by Suyun Juliet Lee, catalog all the things you can never know, now paint them in your dreams with blood, made me think of something that you said about your mother's letters. You said, I don't see these translations as complete. If her letters can go to sleep, my translations are their dreams. Which is just, I think, such a fantastic way to look at it. Well, I, don't, I didn't read this, the complete piece by Suyun, but it's very interesting because it makes me visually think of the Red Room. And the Red Room is a sort of saying in... in Korean families. It's it's a room that's full of your family secrets, and that that room is sort of passed down from generation to generation, and and sort of seeing the the walls covered in in the the blood um, written of the things you cannot know. Well, the most interesting thing I've I've discovered is sort of whether you know these things or not, whether you know your history or not. It doesn't mean that those things don't um, continue to hurt you and pain you. The only thing is you just don't have a name for it and you don't know the reason or cause and you don't have a great trace to find out what it is for yourself. 
So it's quite damaging, actually, I think. But it's 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 interesting because I think it also is rooted in a, in a sort of survival and protection. Um, when I talk about how um, my my translations are the dreams, uh, if my mother's letters were to go to sleep, I think it's to say the, the that the translations aren't my mother's letters, and I think that differentiation is important. It's it's not the actual object of my mother's letters. It's just one way and one interpretation. It's just a reflection of them, and that feels very important because I do think I, I make choices in my translations, choices like um, I want the English to sound very Korean, so things like rhythm and syntax. Some of the words might seem like odd choices, but they feel much more fitting for me. Um, And so the letters, even if they're in English, should read in a way that you hear the Korean behind them, rather than feeling as if the Korean is completely erased and you're just reading the English. And so my letters are are sort of dreaming and full of these little choices and interpretations. They're, they try to mirror the letters, but they're not. And so um, it, I really encourage people to look at my mother's original letters for themselves and, and, and look at the English, look at the handwriting and everything else. So I was hoping maybe we could have you read an excerpt about v- visiting your mother, and then if you don't mind, a half page much later about you and your mother as well. And perhaps it's important to mention that um, there develops sort of a class issue between your reality in America and your parents' reality in Korea. They they are living a life of relative luxury in Korea, and you're living with your brother who's just gone off to college, and things aren't so luxurious <laughs> in in uh, the United States for you. I, I'd love to. The world opened to pure white ceilings and rooms. The east wall of her living room was a tremendous sheet of glass overlooking the city. Her kitchen had foldable cupboards, like origami, springing open then shutting flush against the boards. One unfolded five feet to reveal a cubby with gifts of wine and pears, then concealed itself again. Another contained a circular microwave. I couldn't wait for you to see all of our new stuff, she said, flashing two car keys, as if she had gotten them yesterday, and credit cards gifted by the company for the department store with its green rooftop that was visible from where we stood. Your brother called me, she pouted and dropped her head. I baby treat him too much. I have to stop nagging him and let him go. I have to change my thinking. He had visited her before, but after once or twice, he stopped. He was too busy to come, I answered. Oh, she said. I've been buying this and that, collecting souvenirs. Look at these tiny spoons. I have this rabbit and I call her Unji. She held up a stuffed doll by the ears and showed it to me. Sometimes she doesn't listen to me. I keep her in your room. You keep it in my room. It's across the hall. Looking inside, I saw socks flipped at the ankles on the nightstand, as if the night before I might have thrown them to the floor. Cleaning, she would have picked them up. 
She frowned. When I miss you, I lie on this bed until your dad gets home. When does he get home? Maybe eleven, she said. Your poor dad hates working in this country. It was as we stood over my bed, its flower bedsheets and department store blankets, that she asked me if I needed her to come back, knowing that they had already signed on to stay for another two years, that my father's contract had been extended owing to his good work. I did not know why she asked. Her words had not yet settled when she reassured me that by the time she came back, I would have forgotten how I missed her. You tell the kind and patient person, she said, to be more kind and patient. That's why my Inji will live the hardest life. My mother fussed over my clothes. Sniffing, she told me to throw them off because they were rotten. Then she cursed my patchy skin. Of course I was sick so often. After a scrub at the bathhouse, she said quickly, cradling my head against her shoulder, my dead layers would fall away to show the smooth and clean boiled egg texture underneath. A few weeks with me, she said, and you'll look and feel differently than you do now. Next one's on 81. I was my mother's daughter. The same face except for subtle differences one would notice on close study. Though her lips were fuller, my eyes were wider. Her brows framed her face gently, while mine bordered my face like a box. I shaved the arches of my eyebrows to soften them like hers. I looked like my mother, my mother like her mother, but no one would say I looked like my mother's mother. My mother drank heavily after her mother's death. My father, her friend then, dragged her out of bars regularly. But one night a man tossed a remark at her. Right there, my father brawled with him and nearly died when the man broke a beer bottle and stabbed my father in the throat, barely missing the jugular. The man had two friends with him. Both joined in the beating of my father. My mother called her brothers to rescue him. After that day, they got married. I was my father's daughter because there was in me, other than my face, this love for my mother. Been listening to E.J. Co. read from the magical language of others. Well, one of the things that you do in this book is travel upstream through generations of intergenerational trauma or Han, if not to find the cause to sort of create more context for how it works in your family or, or to do some table setting, as you'd say. Um, but before we talk about what you explore and what you discover as you do this, I wanted to hear more about you saying that there is death in the Korean language, because that statement reminds me of, of something Janice Lee said, that the Korean alphabet is conceived out of violence and trauma, embroiled in injustice. And I, I wanted to hear, before we continue, um, how death is in the Korean language in, in your mind. Death being in the Korean language is, is it's so interesting. I, I agree with Janice and about the alphabet, the Korean alphabet, having and containing so much violence. I think one of the things I've, I've learned as a translator that has been valuable to me and gave me a new perspective is how uh, the, it, it's not only me translating from one language to another, but these languages are in and of themselves 
um, almost like their own, they have their own histories and they have their own um, relationships with each other. And, and something that's really interesting is that there are, um, there are, and this is something that can be felt, is there are dominant languages and there are non-dominant languages. And Korean um, being a sort of language that uh, through history has been non-dominant um, next to the English, you know, it, it really asks the question of whether translation is political, and I think it's inescapably political because of the language's histories. And, and so there's a choice that you make as a translator, and it's it's similar to the choice I made with my mother's letters, is, is having the Korean come forward rather than remain behind and allow its sort of um, history and death and wounding to show itself, because I think that's a step toward the toward Chong rather than Han. So when you when you go back in your family tree. As part of this process, we follow you as you travel up the family tree. And we discover that one of your grandmothers for a time left her family. But we also see how personal traumas in your family really intersect with historical traumas on the paternal side of your family. A story where your paternal grandmother didn't learn that she was Korean until she was an adult. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about that side of the family, the ways Japanese occupation and and um, the massacres that happened in the twenties and forties have shaped the trajectory of your family and and complicated questions of of national identity as well. Yes, my grandma. So I begin the story with my grandmother's parents because that's really when um, the when when South Korea was colonized or annexed by Japan and then you have that sort of colonial violence and um, your own sort of language and name taken away amongst other really horrifying atrocities and so they escaped to I believe it was Shinjuku, Shinjuku um, Japan, it's in it's a city in Tokyo or it's one of the little enclaves in Tokyo and they that's where my grandmother was born and she was born with a different name. She was born with a Japanese name. And they lived there as um, as Japanese people, sort of hiding in, in plain sight. And it was the way that um, many Korean people um, lived to survive, was they would uh, escape to Japan, which which was um, seemed like their only choice at the time. So that meant my grandmother sort of was born and raised in um, Tokyo with the belief that she was Japanese until she was 19. And I believe when she was 19, things were were getting really bad over there. And so her mother and father told her the truth, you know. And it's very interesting because my grandmother would have been born and raised uh, amid all this propaganda against Koreans and uh, sort of these cultural violences. And so... Um, for her to learn that, um, I, I sort of um, go into what that experience must have been for her, and they had to um, escape once again immediately to Jeju Island, so they went back to Jeju Island. And and that's a really incredible point in history that we don't get to hear too often. It's um, 
when when she went there and then you have my grandmother's mother and father sort of reacquainting themselves with not only the Korean language but with the the islanders of Jeju Island who who are different from mainland Korea and I do want to clarify that um, my that they were familiar with Jeju Island that they they had been there before but it had been such a long time and for my grandmother it was her first time and getting used to this sort of matriarchal society there and um, this, the culture of Henyo and the sea women and what it must have all been like for her but uh, one of the main scenes in the memoir have, have to do with the Jeju Island massacre and that was this um, horrible atrocity that is um, maybe in, in this space it seems um, not enough words I can say to really encompass what was going on but there was this uh, uh, it was backed by the US so it was a campaign of sort of South Korean police officers that came onto the the island of Jeju Island in fear of communists or um, sort of spies from um, as, as we are getting closer and closer to the divide of North and South. And so as a way of um, kind of clearing the island, that's exactly what happened. And so it, it wasn't um, just just the South Korean police. And there was also, there were also um, um, like a really intense youth groups um, and then other groups that were um, more left and more right. And so it, it was several things going on that caused, and, and all the revenge and pain. So over, uh, I think people usually associate it as one day, but it was over several months that pe- that this massacre is happening. And I think it's it, it's really interesting to to tell that story of what happened to my grandmother's father and how he was uh, stoned to death and on the way of to retrieve some of their family or neighbors to make sure that they were safe and sort of the way Kumiko found out my grandmother found out about that I think it was important to 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 be there Hmm. I do want to say that I feel like because of the sort of natural um, natural constraints of sort of time and also this being verbal and from the top of my head I've I I'm oversimplifying sort of the period around annexation and the Jeju Island massacre but um, there are so many other wonderful researchers and resources that you can turn to and two of them that come to mind right away are Bruce Cummings has a wonderful book called uh, Korean War Uh, incredible incredible book I I highly recommend it if you're interested and I also think um, Sonia Ring um, has has, has so so many books and um, even papers online so those those are some two places that can give give you more. Thank you. Well, you do in the middle of this book, much like you do in your poetry collection. The middle of that collection being called War, you recount this telling of your great grandfather's 
death by stoning. And you've also said that your mother's heroines were Korean women who threw themselves into fires, jumped off cliffs and withstood torture. But, but you just also hinted at the positive associations you carry with the island as well. Um, the Henyo, the, the women divers, and you've connected that to your writing practice. And I was, I was hoping maybe you could evoke for us the, um, the other side of the islands, the, the islands pre massacre and, um, pre, um, occupation. Um, and what about that lineage? Because I read that your last name suggests that your family is of potentially connected to the founding families of, of the islands. Um, tell, tell us about what you carry that's inspiring about the Henyo and the, and the islands in general. Yes. It's so interesting. Um, even, even recently, anytime I sort of visit another country or I visit an island, I just, I fall in love. I, I feel like there's something in me that loves islands and, and I love the water so much. So anytime I get a chance, I try to be near water. And, and where I live now in West Seattle, I'm right along the edge of this peninsula that has this sort of feeling of being on an island. It's the Cheju, um so the the three founding families of Cheju Island are Ko, Pu and Yang and Ko being um sort of our our family name it's 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 really special to have that in us so we still have some family there today and um I visited before and I think I'll be visiting very soon this year again and some of the the lovely lovely like uh, the way the society runs in this had this beautiful matriarchal um way of living it's so so different from what we imagine as traditional korean culture and i think it's that contrast that can be really surprising when people find out about that and how these um women divers, the henyo, um, would would dive deep under into these sort of um, terrifyingly cold and dangerous waters and bring up these these bounties that helped the the island and the community not only with the economy but with the social spheres and the and to help the island flourish in these ways. And so um you know, just a few of the the wonderful things I talk about from the island are are, are sort of the horses that are that are native to Cheju Island and the really large, beautiful fields of canola flowers, which are which are these bright, bright, bright yellow flowers that just bloom and they they bloom in such like large, um, like mountainous hillsides that cover the island in these beautiful tracks. So. And and you get these very very long caves and the and then the contrast of the sort of the dark rocky beaches, it's it's a really special thing that I feel uh, deep in my bones a sort of affection and connection to, where I feel grounded and um, closer to the earth. Yeah. Well, in the, in the latter part of the book, we we get to see how you start becoming a writer. And also how you start to reconcile with your situation with your parents, and they seem to be linked. You're developing a writing practice and and figuring out 
where you stand in relationship to what's happened. But before we, we sort of look at that section of the book, I kind of think it would be good to hear a letter from your mother, um, if you don't mind, uh, one of the uh, translations that you did. Yes, I would love to. Hello, Unji. Mommy came home last night. Because it snowed so much, Mommy, Auntie, and the others, five altogether, played in Ichan instead. Spending lots of time with Auntie from Tejon makes me happy. I recall there's only one year left before I go back, and I'm sorry I won't see Auntie like this anymore. Now it's almost about time the cold stops and spring arrives, but yesterday it snowed anyway. These days, I haven't been able to meet with Kiwon. Mommy's been a bit busy, you know. Your little uncle from Tejon has moved to a smaller house. Still, it's a relief he moved at all. I've got to spare some time and stop by. If I see the house, I might become disheartened. But I should go, shouldn't I? How's Inji doing? Your brother sounds very stressed. The sewer line in the backyard exploded, so he can't go to work. He kept shouting, the housework is going to kill me. While talking to you on the phone, your brother said he had something to tell me too. After you went outside with Asen, I talked to John. The truth is, Mommy was so guilty that she couldn't say anything. I'm curious if everything got fixed alright. After I post this letter, I'll try giving you guys a call. I'm sorry to Unji too. For now, all I can do is wait for the two of you to graduate. At least that's what it seems like. When I visit in March, I'll have to discuss what to do next. Nothing comes easy in life, they say. Free things are even rarer. I get what I give. It's payback for what I did. And if there are hard times, there are also good times. And when there is money, there are times of spending, right? That's living. So they say there's nothing to be heartbroken or sad about, because that's how life has always been. It's time for mommy to head out. You know Hee-jong? She got married last year. She had a baby and told me to come today to see it. I'm supposed to go with Hoya. Mommy's head is scattered, so I wanted to stay home. But I promised them last week, you know. Even when I played with Auntie and the others, Mommy's heart flew off to Davis. I want to hurry over and do all sorts of things for you, so my heart aches. As I leave the house, I'll try giving you a call. Unji, you don't have any news, do you? Last time, your friend who lied to you, what a joke. Of all the things in life. Anyway, it's a good lesson. Now you know there are people like that. Laughable. During the week, be well and have fun with your life. Mommy will think long and hard for a couple days. On Monday, I'll write again. Bye. Mom. February 10th, 2006. Listening to E.J. Co. read from The Magical Language of Others. So when I encounter these letters as a reader, I often find myself feeling angry on your behalf. Your mom is obviously feeling guilt, but at the same time tries to put the responsibility of that guilt going away on you being happy. Mm-hmm. But what's uh, But on a craft level, I wanted to 
kind of look at my response because I don't think the book or you ever asks me to feel anything about the letters. And we don't often know what you're feeling um, after a letter. There's an article in the Seattle Weekly that was entitled, E.J. Co. Will Make You Cry. And, and I think it's true <laughs> that the book was incredibly moving to read. And I went through a wide array of emotions, including the desire to cry. But while you also cry in the book and we learn of your struggles with despair, largely it feels like you, you let the way you just, you describe the situation, tell the story rather than you describing your feelings mm -hmm. that you sort of allow the situation to do the work for the reader Mm -hmm. and and that there's a restraint that allows for um, the reader to feel any number of things. Um, and I wonder if this was something crafted, laboriously crafted mm -hmm. on your part mm -hmm. that you were aiming for, or if it was more um, something that you just gravitate towards as a way of writing. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It, it relates to our conversation of Han, right? It's almost as if if I sat there and, and really gave this hard cry and I really explained how I felt and how something damaged me and what the consequences are and why I want that to be fixed and what I can do, at least right now, to do that. Well, what happens is I'm releasing my Han in that moment you kind of lose the uh, momentum and the buildup of that haunt. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think as a young adult um, and also as a child, there's something instilled in me not to release that haunt. And at the same time, I think it comes out in my writing as well. There are very few moments when I break down, and when I do break down, it seems more like a... It's still very in my head, you know, it's, there, these are choices I make to harm myself. But you don't really get access into the, the sort of sense that the Han is released, that this person knows themselves and knows what's happening to them. And even if they do, that they feel like they deserve to emit those emotions. So I think it's it's all those things, and it's also a sense of, like, when I, when, when I read... The memoir over again I really get a sense and it's much easier to, to to read it and see it now that I'm in the future of at the point in which I wrote the book in the past but how little value I gave to my own life and I think that thing is sort of self-taught I think uh, even from the very beginning of the book there is an inward choice I make and that's the scene when I'm in Davis with without giving too much away but with with my bird and and being there and and trying to do something and things not working out quite right i think there's a moment that i decide early on that there's just no joy that's possible for me and that's really interesting to to make a decision like that when you're so young and incapable of making that decision incapable of articulating that you are and why you are but what's so damaging is that it's still just as powerful as any decision you make as an adult because it's there. It's now there. And it's not until much later in the book 
that um, I do release Han, but instead of sort of this emotional outpouring, it's a very small thing that I do, and it's just going back to that initial decision and noticing it there and reversing it and saying that, oh, I think, I think it's possible for me to have a semblance of joy. Mm. And so I, I, the way the Han comes out is, is, is not this sort of big, gesture but it comes out in this deep knowing that something has sort of unlatched itself from inside me and I found that that was the truest expression of how it was for me in real life like if you kind of went into my brain and replayed the video of these years I think on the outside you, you and I and I think I say there's this moment I talk about that but on the outside it seems very much like you know, you could have gone to school with me back in the 80s. It seems very much like a normal life and going to college and going to school and looking for work. You know, on the outside, it, it very much seemed like it wasn't that um, painful. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I just read this long and remarkable post by your agent mm. about the journey the book went through. Mm -hmm. And I wondered... You know, there were many rejections, and then there were an innumerable number of revisions. I'm curious about the revisions because I, I wondered as I asked in the last question whether part of the revisions were to craft this effect, whereas it sounds like this effect is is maybe more natural to your actual experience rather mm -hmm. than something that your agent was saying you need to aim for this restraint, perhaps. Right, right. But um, what were the revisions? Um, um. I mean that's a yeah. ridiculous question. No, what were the revisions? But what was the what was what were you aiming for in, in this process of revisions, which started in 2015 and right. and went until last year? I'm assuming. Right. A total, I think it was about seven years of changing things around. It it, it was a very long, grueling process. And and also, it occurs to me, speaking to that sort of restraint, I think is. It's it's also something I've picked up from poetry, and so if you read my poetry, it's it's very similar. And so I think um, some of that restraint is the poetry, uh, the the poet talking and coming through. Um, for the revisions, I it's incredible. I think initially the memoir began as what I thought should be a, it's a book of literary translations. So it was just forty nine letters and the translations of those letters and an introductory two pages uh, about the background of those letters. And so I, I, I've translated the letters over years and we sent that out and that's when we got a, a really massive no. And and it's, it's really funny. I mean, your agent will tell you those no's are not like, come back in three years, but they're forever no's, right? So that was... That, that was tough but but so valuable and so so good for me at the time because one of the big big responses we got was the letters themselves are wonderful they're very important and they have bits of things we've never heard before it's they're very special but but these two pages you've written I mean that's that you know you write those two pages and then you just leave us that's in, that's just remarkable because in those two pages I have sort of the content of the whole memoir in there and so I I, I was asked can you turn these two pages into 200 pages 
Wow. So if you look at the <laughs> if you look at the memoir, it's it's two hundred and three pages exactly. It's probably two hundred give or take. And so I, I, I really, really did stick to I I just want to do two hundred pages and, and tell the story that way. And so a lot of the revision was was not just on the writing level, but it was mostly in the level of changing genres and also on the level of not only um, um, kind of getting up to date and, and working with sentence and chapters and working more intimately with prose, but also realizing that there's changes that I need to make in myself before I can make certain changes in the book. If I don't have that level of magnanimity, if I don't have a, a way to understand every single person, then this this book does uh, very little to serve someone else, right? So, so I really needed to get to a point where I felt like it was no longer me writing the book, but the book was starting to teach me things. And that's mm. when I realized that the book was closer and closer to getting finished is when it sort of became its own object and it had its own abilities that um, surpassed what I had hoped for it. Well, when I describe your writing of emotions as restrained, I I don't really feel like that's entirely accurate because the book also feels really open and vulnerable. And I wanted to talk about that in comparison to the way you used to write or the way you used to describe your writing. Because you said that you used to, quote unquote, arm your poems to give them the opportunity to defend themselves, that you were militaristic in how they were written and edited, and that the poems wouldn't be released into the world until they could fend for themselves <laughs> and were well-armored. Wow. And you also say that the last third of your poetry collection is messier, riskier, more vulnerable, and more open. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's my experience of the memoir, not that it's messy. I don't yeah. think it's messy but it's more vulnerable and more open. I don't yes. see the... Um, true. There might be restraint, but they don't feel armored. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about the origin story of writing as armoring yeah. and then the process of abandoning writing as armoring. Right. I love the quotes that you pull. I, I sound so intense. <laughs> 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 you, you must read those interviews of me and... Oh man, this is a scary person. But not at all. <laughs> it it sounds so intense, but I think I really I I ne- I didn't connect that idea for a long time until I was doing more translation and doing more work in sort of Korean history and inherited trauma. And then I realized this thing that I do when I write my poems, it feels very close to these other things that I'm reading about. Of course, it, it it's different, you know. It's it, it's a poem. It's it seems harmless, but I think I I got closer and closer to the idea that the way I do something is as important as anything else. The way I go about it is as important as the way the poem turns out in the end, if not more important, because the way I go about it is going to make up the majority of my life. Very few times do I actually complete the poem or that the time that it comes to that it's like oh i'm done with this most of my life is in editing and in um processing and so it was important for me to take a close look at what i was doing 
and the emotions that it brings up, which is, which was very militaristic. It's it's very exacting, and I had this um. I, I would get complimented by my editors because I had this way of just cutting lines, cutting chapters, cutting things out. And they're like, you you do that so easily. I've never met someone who is so hard on themselves, mm. so hard on their work. And, and it's because I'm hard on myself. And so, but I think over time I realized um, that sort of practice was that sort of damage was coming into my real life and coming into um, my relationship with myself and the way I saw myself with the world, right? It was a way of arming. And so what any sort of, even in defense, that defense still poses that there is an opposing force on the other side. So any sort of militarism or defense, like those things I was really sensitive to, and thinking that's not what I want to do. I don't want to build something up, up and throw it out there. I, I want to open myself as much as possible and put myself out there to be as vulnerable as possible because I think that's that's much more important and much more needed in terms of art and literature right now. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of intergenerational trauma, you, you said that your your mother told you that the women in your family were cursed. And because of this, you had nightmares and that you wrote them down so that you wouldn't be haunted by them. Yeah. And I wondered if that was, if you saw that as part of the origin story of armoring, because in a way that feels like exactly that you're being told about intergenerational trauma that's being passed down. Right. It's in fact affecting your dreams. And then you're seeing an immediate response. If you write them down, they don't return. I think that's a really insightful thing it it reminds me how yeah when when i was really really young i would have um these terrible nightmares they were so vivid that it would feel i would feel almost incapacitated for the rest of my day and my my mother would tell me that no one else in our family dreams but you and me she said she would say my mom was like that too and that's where you get it from is that the women in our family have these terrible nightmares where we um live through really painful um grueling these very real terrors at night and so i think i began writing them down as a way to erase them from my mind and then later on I began to do this sort of exercise where I'll wake up and go over the dream the way I wished it had gone almost as a way of reconciling before I start my day what I could learn from that dream or what that dream points to so that I can get closer and closer to a sense of peace and a sense of rest and so things like that I find are so so important to me resting, um, taking things easy, uh, relaxing, and making sure that the rest comes easy. I'm really fortunate I'm getting to a place where I don't have um, as many nightmares, if at all, anymore. And if I do, I, I was able to sort of give myself these tools over time to, to help me look at them and see them rather than as a way to um, arm myself against them, yeah. 
one of my favorite conversations with you was your conversation with Chelsea Grimmer for the poetry vlog. Mm -hmm. And in that conversation, you talk about how poetry and caring became intertwined for you. So maybe in the opposite of this armoring impulse that you grew up not knowing how to care for people or love them and that it was a poetry teacher who's one of the first people to care for you. And thus poetry became connected with caring. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about this association and how it shaped your art. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I, I had a great time talking about that moment, that interaction I had with my first poetry teacher in the book. I think it came from the way that I was having difficulty ending my poems as I was learning to write poetry and that was the feedback I got it was, you know, you you can really start a poem and you can really fill the space of a poem but what you're missing is this sort of um, magnanimity. At the time I, I hated school, I didn't go to school often at all, but, and I, and I didn't know that word and I was rebellious and very rude, but I, I came back and I wanted to know what that meant. What was this thing, this word, and what was the thing that I was missing about poetry? And it was this sort of, um, when, when we're looking at a poem about my mother, let's say, it's that by the end of the poem I have to either forgive my mother or the poem has to forgive me for not forgiving my mother. And, and that sort of magnanimity is, is what helps me um, even today. It's, it's a, it was the very first lesson I got in poetry, and it's, it's one of those lessons that ended up kind of escaping the bounds of just that practice and, and going everywhere into my life the way I carry my relationships and friendships and when I mentor or I am mentored, it, it means a lot to, to look at things in that way, to always have that turn in me. Um, and I think it's poetry in that way that, that has taught me to not only look really carefully and closely at things, but it's, it's taught me to care because you can't, I don't think you can really write a poem about anything unless you care about it, even if that poem is about how much you dislike a thing. I mean, you, you care enough to talk about it this way. And so caring and learning how to care, what that looks like, how it feels, was, was so important to me. So, so you had another poetry teacher say to you that to be a great poet, you should learn to translate. And then one unexpected discovery I had is that you don't only become closer to your parents through translating your mother's letters or finding your way back to your parents through that emotional process, but that you also have your parents participate in your writing practice, that your dad helps you with your translations, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping maybe you could, we could hear just a little bit about your dad, how he helps you with your translations, and then also potentially the story of how one of the first translations you did ended up being your mother's best friend from high school. Oh, right. right so right. in a way, your your mom and dad are both participating in translation actively. Yeah. 
not not just in in the translation of them they are um um they they, they didn't um I, I didn't go to my dad for the translations of my mother's letters but i went to him in the beginning when i was at in my program and i was doing my translation thesis of my mother's friend's poetry book from korea and it was really helpful for me to go to him and and sort of ask not just sort of of because i had the literal literal translation of the word but like i said it it was important for me to know the history of that word and what it points to and the different shades and the way it resonates because in korean one word can have so many different meanings it's it's interesting because in the english we have so many words for one word like let's say the word pretty you know we have so many words we have so many words i'm still learning new english words but in the korean there's much less words but those words have a multitude of meanings based on their context and the surrounding words um so some of those things were uh, more trickier to navigate and it was helpful for me to approach my dad in this way and we didn't um we 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 our relationship is is very interesting since this is one of the first things we're doing together and so that was really fun and um to this day he he doesn't stop joking that um my i should credit him more for my translation thesis and what not and <laughs> it's, it's he he's really sweet about it and he's a big jokester too and and he does he did he deserves quite a bit of credit for talking me through but there were times when he would refuse to translate something or talk about something with me cuz um the poems are tra- i was translating were um some of them had these really like um um sexual images or they were um using language that he just did not want to tell me what they meant and so i'll i'll kind of try to talk around the word to him and say well is that what it means and he'll say no it's a little worse and i go well is this what it means he goes kind of cringes and walks away so there were there were some fun moments in translating with him, with him i think with my mother's friend's poetry book landing in my hands it was when i was visiting my mom one time and she had her friend over and her friend is so funny she tells me that her friend is a poet and i go oh, that's amazing you know you know the whole time by the way we had been drinking and we're doing karaoke singing we spent quite a bit of time together before um my mother brought up that her friend was a poet i said that's remarkable i'd love to read your poetry and so the friend gave me um one of her poetry books and i just I I I loved it. I I loved how simple and um and, and each of her poems are so short and the the way they read to me. I loved them so I I decided to translate her book of poetry. Could could you read one for us? This is Tabi by Kim Myung-won. Firewood with dimmed appendages of light, slightly weighted with stars. Spring bloomed at the apple tree. flower patches in front of sukchon temple courtyard picking petals off my twisted time monk jio saw 30 years of my life lying down as a round well ripened apple 
until only dazzling seeds remain to reveal a paradox. You are present only after disappearing. Both the return trip and the trip that has to be taken first, superimposed by darkness, firmly tied together, set his body on fire. The scent of apples is profound. That line, or those lines, you are present only after disappearing, both the return trip and the trip that has to be taken first, superimposed by darkness, firmly tied together, seems like an uncanny description of your journey with your parents also. Uh, um, I know that's not what the poem's about. Yeah. But there's, a, there's another line of, in one of your poems that I love that goes, He would discover me washed ashore inside a chest, stuffed with love letters, each one containing a knife with no instructions. And I was thinking maybe this would be a good time to, maybe we could end the conversation with your, your talking about your love letters project, your, your goal to write 1000 love letters to strangers who first write to you about their struggles. Yes. Uh, tell us about the love letters project, if it is connected to the translation of your mother's letters or not. And, and and how it's going. Yeah, I, th I think there is a connection. But when I began the project, I wasn't aware of it. It must have been so deeply buried in my subconscious at that point. But uh, I began the project before the memoir and before the poetry book. And so I was still writing and, and teaching a little bit of writing. But I stopped because I had a, I, I was having a hard time understanding what I was doing and why I was doing it. And so I said, you know, if I can really take a break from writing and I don't need to write, I can, and I can go long enough without writing, maybe it's not the thing for me. And so that was really scary for me at the time since I'm someone who identified with being a writer for, for such a long time. It gave me something to attach myself to. And so I, I had to take that choice to let that go for a while because it was causing um, more pain in my life at that point. And so uh, during that break, I, I was thinking about well, if writing is not the thing, if it's not the goal, then what is the actual thing? What is the thing that writing is supposed to get me to? And I think it, it was very simple. The, the idea just struck me that... I, I, I just want to sort of connect on a one-to-one -one and be able to talk to somebody and listen to them. And so I went to Twitter late one night and said, I'm going to write a thousand love letters by hand. And if you want me, just email me here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And I think the 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 very next morning, you know, I had re requests for letters from all over the world, from South Korea, Canada, from from Ireland, from 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 everywhere, from across the street, and so I I, I set out to write those letters, and they they are to this day the the most precious thing I do because I think they are the they represent sort of the truest form of what that thing is for me, which is not writing, but it's, it's, it's helping me and others feel a little less alone and feeling more connected to each other. And so that love letter project is ongoing. I, I just sent, maybe two days ago, I sent um, 
103. And so I still have quite a bit to go, but I think that's the point. I think the point is I'd like to do this uh, for the rest of my life. It, it's a precious thing to me, and it's very different from anything else I do. And can people find out about it if they go to your website? Yes, yes. There's a little page on my website with um, very short instructions, which is just my email address and letting me know a little bit about yourself. Yeah. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, EJ. Thank you so much. It was an incredible interview and a conversation. We're talking today to poet and writer EJ Ko about her latest book, The Magical Language of Others from Tin House Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of EJ Co's writing at thisisejco.com, which is also the location where you can learn more about or maybe participate in her ongoing Love Letters project. EJ also adds some extra readings to the bonus audio archive, which joins supplemental material by C.A. Conrad. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, Daniel Jose Older, Richard Powers, Laylee Longsoldier, Ted Chang, Tommy Pico, John Keane, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>